Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Indiana's least favorite podcast, The End of Sport. <laughs> I'm Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am joined as, uh, not always, because usually I'm not here, um, but they're usually here, um, so I have the pleasure of joining uh, Derek Silva and Johanna Mellis. Uh, great to talk to you guys again. Hey. Hi, sorry, I'm still laughing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I do. I do love the state of Indiana. I've always loved it. It it really embodies everything I think is uh, really you know part of a humane society. So um, it, it pains me that sh- former sheriffs in Indiana uh, have told me that I'm not allowed to re-enter the state. Um, they just don't appreciate happiness vampires in that state. That's right. I, those are exactly the folks that I to try to nourish myself uh, with the <laughs> destruction of their joy and meaning. So they're, they're right. They're right to fear me in Indiana. Um, also home of the NCAA. So there's lots to love in that fine state. <laughs> Sorry. I cannot keep it together. This is hilarious. <laughs> no, but really, we, we have an um, amazing episode coming up for you today. I, I guess that I could not be more excited that we got a chance to speak to Joel D. Anderson, writer and podcaster for Slate, former ESPN writer, uh, former college football player, all of the above. Uh, amazing figure. So uh, this is going to be a terrific conversation. Uh, and we'll throw to it in just a sec. But before we do, just want to remind folks, please, 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 um, one, Follow the show on Twitter if you haven't done so at End of Sport Pod. That will keep you in the loop when we have new episodes up. Uh, please, please subscribe to the podcast if you don't do that already. Whatever um, podcasting app you use, that should be a possibility. Um, if you are really feeling generous, we would be grateful if you would consider uh, supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, I would also like to remind any newer listeners of the show that we have actually a very extensive back catalog of episodes. We have something like 77 episodes available right now, uh, approximately in that neighborhood. And the thing about our show is that our episodes are largely evergreen. So if you go back through that archive uh, and see a conversation, see the name of someone that you'd be interested in hearing from, uh, I think you would really enjoy and appreciate that discussion, whether or not it happened a year ago or just a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we strive to make the conversation sort of lasting in their relevance. Um, so please do check out that material because um, I think sort of it's a kind of a it's a bit of a, a bit of a gold mine in my in my own very humble estimation. Uh, so I think without any further ado, let's throw it to Joel Anderson. Anderson is a writer and podcaster at Slate, where he co-hosts the show Hang Up and Listen. He's previously worked for ESPN, BuzzFeed, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he played football for two years at TCU. Joel, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it is absolutely our pleasure. We've been wanting to chat with you for a while. As someone who um, had played Uh, at TCU and played football Um, and this show being kind of founded out of the idea um, or, or trying to shed light on the exploitative dimensions of not just college football, but college athletics much more generally. 
we are super happy to have you on the show. So I guess our first question to start with you is as a former player at TCU, what is your read on college football from a standpoint of fairness for the athletes involved? Well, I probably have uh, a really complicated view of it, right? Um, I know that on the whole, that it's exploited, right? That, you know, college athletes, for the most part, particularly those that play college football, they're not sharing in uh, the millions, tens of millions of dollars in revenues that they generate. And I think that that's a real problem. Um, you know, I agree with some of the people that say that it's a civil rights issue. Um, and, you know, that part of it sucks. But I also know that, you know, having gone through the process, um, that a lot of the guys that I played with, that they might not have had a path into college otherwise, most of many of them, right? Um, and that there's not a lot of other pathways into college, um, particularly for young black men, um, other than, you know, athletic scholarships. And so, I, you know, you know, like a lot of us, you know, I have social media, I have Facebook, and I look at a lot of the guys that I played with. And, you know, they have you know, fairly middle-class jobs and lives. And, you know, they are doing pretty well now. And I'm like, man, I don't know if that would have happened if they hadn't had the opportunity to play college football. But that doesn't mean just because, you know, um, they, we got these opportunities that there's not something deeply wrong with the system. So I guess to to, to answer the question, um, I don't think it's fair because they don't get back what they actually put into the system. But I also... Value the pathway that college football offers for you know uh, tens of thousands of young black men all around this country, man. Because um, it's just not a lot of other ways in. That's that is such a great point, and it's something that we've been thinking a lot about in sort of conceptualizing you know the the coercive dynamics in mm -hmm. college sport and college football. Because I I think you're right on on the surface. It is a form of opportunity, uh, and there mm -hmm. are benefits that do come from it. it like it, it would be unreasonable to say that nothing uh, mm -hmm. results. But like really, if you boil it down, what you've just indicated is that we're talking about a form of structural coercion, right? Because mm -hmm. if you want to take the bigger picture, it's the very fact that the United States has been organized through racial capitalism, right? And its history mm -hmm. of slavery and expropriation and the extraction of value from black people that then creates a situation where this becomes an opportunity that's needed or desired, right? right. But if you had yeah. a much more equitable society, then it would look to, like people wouldn't necessarily feel like they have to sacrifice their well-being through football in order to get what they want out of life. You know, Absolutely. Um, if they had access to universities through um, just, I mean, even just the, the sheer accessibility of the cost, that's a big part. Mm -hmm. I, I like to talk a lot about the Canadian comparison, right? Because in Canada, mm -hmm. there is, there is inter-university sport, but it's much less of a big deal. Uh, it's not it's not really, you know, a big it's not big business basically. And it's also like the cost of going my cost of going to undergrad um you know 20, 20 years ago or whenever it was, <laughs> it was about $6,000 a year for tuition, oh, man. right? Oh, Canadian that's dollars. Great. You see oh, what I'm saying? Man. So if that's what we're talking about, I mean, it should still be more accessible than that. I'm not even saying like, that's good enough. I, I would I would like a system where higher education is free for all to attend in the same way that, you know, the K to 12 education should be free to all, for all to attend. But in that model, it becomes less necessary to pursue football and football becomes more of a choice as opposed to the sort of thing that like that, something that you can't turn down because it could be life changing for you in the context of such an unjust system. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I like the, the, the word you use, coercive, because, you know, um, I think people would probably be surprised at how many football players hate football. Uh, you know, football sucks, I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, the parts that you enjoy are so fleeting. I mean, I tell people all the time, if you play, if you play football at any level, the smallest amount of time you'll spend is the playing part, you know, where you're out in front of people and it's competitive and you get to do all that fun stuff, right? Uh, it doesn't last very long. And so the, the, a, a lot of it is really hard. You're breaking down your body. You're um, missing out on all these other things uh, educationally and socially. Uh, I just, I, I even remember walking across campus to go to practice one day and I saw kids laying down on the yard, you know, with a picnic and throwing a Frisbee around. And I was like, man, that looks cool. I wish I could do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, would, I would love to do that. Uh, and I never did. But, you know, um, to that point, though, I mean, they're in this pathway that is coercive, as you say. And maybe if there were better economic and educational opportunities at the very start where, you know, people could depend on their local public school district to get them through and to support them. And, and if kids go home and they've got all the resources, you know, from food, shelter, clothing, whatever, like if all these people were getting, uh, you know, this, if we lived in a more equitable society, then yeah, maybe kids would be like, well, I want to go to school and be a sociologist or you know, I wouldn't, you know, whatever. I, I can I could be an attorney. It would be they would seem like more realistic options. And they still in some ways are, but there's like this defined pathway that you know, especially, you know, certain neighborhoods, if you live in Florida, Texas, California, deep south, whatever, you know that there is like this you've seen a lot of other people do this, play college football, college basketball, and you know that you can get there if you work to a certain level or you work these angles or whatever. And so it's just really hard. Um, to get people out of it, right? Because uh, it's just much, it's much, it, it seems much more daunting the other way. So we have to ask, you did, you mentioned that like it's people that you chat to say they don't enjoy football. Did you enjoy your time playing at TCU? No. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, 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 in all fairness, the most fun I had playing football, and I mean, this is going to sound terrible now because it, now we know that this is actually very bad. Um, but playing little league football or youth football is the most fun I ever had football at every level after that, it, it became less fun. Um, but by the time I got to college, man, I mean, it's just so hard. I mean, you're getting up yeah. at five fifteen in the morning, you're exhausted, you know, you do your workouts, you uh, take down a quick breakfast and then you rush through your classes. So you start at eight o'clock. Yeah. They've got to be done by one, one thirty. You got to get back over to the football facility mm -hmm. and you're not really done until maybe seven o'clock you're you're beat up you're tired you've been up since yeah. five o'clock and 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 that's like your day every day um yeah. so no it's not a lot of fun um uh, but the game days dressing up being on the sideline uh the social capital that comes with being a football mm -hmm. player like walking around in your little gear or whatever that part of it is cool but the actual day-to-day -day grind of it no it's not a lot of fun i knew i knew very quickly like after my first two a days as a freshman i was like jesus i don't know how much more i can do with this this sucks <laughs> you're you're like quite literally articulating this as like a tr a, a transaction that you are mm -hmm. actively thinking about at the at the the collegiate level which is wild yeah no it, I it mean, runs completely counter to to that narrative that like oh these are everyone is enjoying this this is amazing it's good for everyone 
Oh, no. I mean, it's like one of the hardest jobs you'll ever have. Uh, I don't, it, I mean, I don't know that I was as busy or as tired um, in my life as I was playing college football because you've got to balance so many different things. And it's not like your coaches are excited about your academic performance. Like they only care about your academic performance as long as you can stay eligible. But if you say, hey, coach, I got a 3.5, like that doesn't have anything to do with their job. They're not invested in that. Um, and so, yeah, so that part of it, then, yeah, like I said, you don't get to really experience college in a lot of the way. When I was over there for those two years, I was on that side of campus, you know, getting ready to go to practice, coming back from practice. And then after practice, like you've got to kind of dedicate yourself in school or you can watch film. It's just not a lot of built-in time for fun. And, um, I, yeah, I think that a lot of people would be surprised at how little actual fun the college football players are having in that experience. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, I think on, I think kind of highlighting to what extent um, being a football player is, quote-unquote, sort of fun or enjoyable, I think that's a really good segue to talking about the um, athlete activism that we saw amongst college mm. basketball um, and football players last year. And in particular, in 2020, when writing about the cancellation of the NCAA basketball tournament, you wrote, quote, the only thing that could have made the cancellation of this year's tournament feel good is that the players were the ones who decided to end it, quote, referring to the possibility of a labor action. And then this year in 2020, we had the hashtag not NCAA property social media campaign. And then, of course, the explosion of NIL rights for players. Now, we're wondering, what do you make of this moment? And I guess to what extent might it be the, the sort of feel-good story we might be look, people might be looking for? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always excited about uh, athlete activism and like the potential for unionization, right? Um, and, and, and them capitalizing on at least part of their value, but it's, it's still uh, lacking um, because, well, for one, I mean, NIL rights can never truly um be fair um i mean that requires the players to hustle on their own they've got to deal with agents or whatever else and that does nothing to rectify the fact that they're not getting they're not the schools have to sacrifice nothing to 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 give away nil rights rights that they already should have had in the first place but the money that the players actually generate they're still not getting a cut of that and there's just for all the, you know, for all the money that they're able to, you know, opportunities that they're able to engage in now, that still doesn't rectify that. I mean, you know, there's still, you know, five associate athletic directors in, you know, a major Division One college, and they're making six figures. Um, and the athlete, you know, the third cornerback, you know, of a top 25 team, he's not getting paid for his actual labor. So uh, I do think that there's something wrong with that. And so, no, I didn't think of it as a feel-good story. And especially, I think, the thing about the NCAA basketball tournament last year um, when I wrote that is that I couldn't actually believe that they were still going to – I think the thing that I, I was mostly relieved that they canceled it, um, I was like, man, there's no way they're going to put these athletes through playing through a pandemic, right? Like, we, they canceled South by Southwest. In Houston, right. they canceled in, – in Houston, they, covered, they, they uh, canceled the livestock show and rodeo, which is a big annual gathering down there. That's a big – like, when they canceled that, you know shit got real. You know, in Houston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I'm like, oh, they're still trying to have the tournaments. They just had the Big Ten basketball tournament. Like, why are they doing this? Why are they putting them at risk? So that the fact that they canceled it in the first place was, you know, a relief. But um, it just highlighted the fact that the players really didn't have a choice in the matter. They had to do – they couldn't stop playing – 
until their coaches and their athletic departments were like, okay, this is not going to happen anymore. But they didn't have any autonomy in the situation. They didn't have any decision-making power. And that was, that's sort of terrifying. And that's still, you know, that's still true today. Right. Absolutely. And and that brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, which is sort of the question of um, player power, you know, player resistance. You mentioned unionization, and that's that's exactly the, the, the standpoint we take as well, that if there's going to be any kind of serious change in working conditions in college sport, it requires the empowerment of athletes to make the changes that they need for themselves, right? And to have agency mm-hmm. over what their conditions actually are. Um, we're obviously Absolutely. really far from that still. Um, but I mean, hopefully, you know, we're, we're pushing in that direction. And you've done some really interesting work um, in the last year kind of on this issue. So I want to highlight some of it to, to, to oh. ask you about it. So when Oklahoma State running back Chuba Hubbard publicly criticized his coach, uh, Mike Gundy's racist behavior last year, and then he quickly walked it back. I don't know if it was the same day or very shortly thereafter. It was kind of a big social media hubbub, basically, that occurred. Um, Mm -hmm. You wrote, quote, going back to work accomplishes little but returning power to the institution. The games need not go on if the players don't want them to. And then you cited an example in that story that I wasn't aware of, although I should have been, and I really appreciate you for this, a protest by Grambling State players in 2013 against their working conditions that led them to walk out on a homecoming game for Jackson State that cost their rival, that is Jackson State, millions, according to the school themselves. Yet, ultimately, the Grambling players, too, returned to practice, and nothing about their working conditions changed. Last year... Also, ultimately, the We Are United protests and others, which we, you know, we covered a lot on this show, and what you were thinking about, we were thinking about, those protests ultimately largely fizzled, right? College football came back, the season went on, and the players really didn't have much of a say. The Pac-12 essentially laughed in the face of the We Are United protests, and although I, I have nothing but respect for the players who were involved, at the end of the day, they did not have the power to leverage some kind of change yet. But now we see the organization of the United College Athlete Advocates. We had Kaya McCullough on the show talking about them. Um, we have the College Football Players Association recently, which is formed, led by Jason Stahl, former University of Minnesota professor. My question is, do you think we are reaching a moment of increased labor militancy a la Missouri in 2015? And I say that Missouri, right? Because as you well know, Missouri is the, mo- the successful moment, the moment where the players withdrew their labor and they actually got the president of the university fired or, he, you know, he resigned. But I mean, obviously they, they, they walked him out the door. Or is this moment likely to teeter back towards grambling in 2013? Is it too difficult to organize college football players? Wow. Uh, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. Um, you know, I, I'm a cynical person and I try to mitigate that because I don't want it to sound like hopelessness. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think that it's really good when people engage in activism and they're constantly pressing for change. But yeah, I think the grambling example is something that is really important and that, yes, they were able to briefly make their institution uh, and the people around them bend to their will that, you know, they, they exercise some power. Um, you know, they, they change, you know, they, they, the coach that they had at the time didn't get to stay. There was like some superficial cosmetic changes made to their facilities and their upkeep. And they got some, you know, a wave of donations that helped, but then fundamentally that, you know, the, the situation didn't change. And I think that that's probably what we're going to see. Unfortunately, 
going forward um, because, yes, it is really difficult to organize college football players for all the reasons that you all talk about on the show all the time. You know, the transient nature of college football players. Um, everybody, people have differing, you know, motivations. Like I think about, you know, you mentioned the We Are United movement last year, which seemed really promising. And I was really excited. And I think we all talked to Otito Obanaya of uh, UCLA last year, who, you know, was just so articulate and so smart and thoughtful about, you know, that labor movement and what they wanted to accomplish. And then I just think about how I was co-opted by the Let Us Play movement, which was led by the actual stars of college football, you know, Trevor yes. Lawrence, um, you know, Justin Fields, guys like that. Like they came right in over the top of them and essentially, um, you know, co-opted that movement. And then they got right back to playing and with no fundamental changes. So um, that part of it is the sort of thing that I, that I think is the really difficult part. In addition to the fact that players never stay alone, stay around long enough, like at the most, particularly in the FBS level, you know, players might stay three. The really good players might stay three years, and they've got a totally different motivation. They're just trying to get through, get enough games on tape, on film, so they can get to the NFL. And other people are just kind of trying to hold on, but they never acquire as much power and notoriety as those players that are really good who have have all the motivation to keep playing. So um, it's really set up for the players to fail. I mean, this is how the system is designed. Colleges do not want players to have a say in how things are going, and it, you know. There's all these conversations going on about college football now, you know, this realignment of conferences and television deals. Players aren't involved at all. They have no stake in it. Like if they tell them they have to play a 15th game, they're going to have to do it probably, right? So um, that part of it, yeah, I just don't, I don't see much happening going forward without like a fundamental, like a sort of a revolutionary act. And I don't know, you know, the, the one good thing about it now and that I, that I didn't appreciate last year is how much the players are talking in the background with each other. You know, that there's a, it's, it's so much easier to communicate with, you know, a, a player from UCLA and Tennessee or Florida State. And they, they communicate in ways today that they didn't even five or ten years ago. So that part of it is promising, but it's just really, it's just sort of frustrating when you hear about all these move, this movement going on in major college sports and you know that players are not a part of those conversations. And there's a reason for that is because it's designed for them to, sort of be on the outside looking game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, th while you're talking, I two immediate questions came to mind. So I'm sorry that I'm going to ask you two questions back to back yeah. that are like related, but, but not quite the same thing. The hmm. first question is naturally. So what in your assessment is needed for athletic workers to mobilize successfully into a union? That would be like the, hmm. the first kind of natural. And then secondly, while you're talking about all these distractions and how the let us play movement co-opted over the top of what would likely be considered the real labor movement, like mm -hmm. on top of that, there's also nil. There's also NIL now that is seemingly doing that too. How does NIL play a role in um, kind of pacifying folks so that they might not want to really mobilize around unionization? No, that, that's a that's a great point. Because um, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about it. It only increases the motivation of those players that can cash in on NIL mm -hmm. to keep mm -hmm. things going, right? Like it's yeah. a it's the same like let said, us play. It's the same it, people. Absolutely, it's just a little inducement, and this is oh wow, we can still make money. If we keep playing, this money keeps coming in. Raising canes doesn't want to see you sit out a game, right? So um, that part of it 
makes me think that that sort of undermines any potential union movements that are going forward. I, you, you know, you hope that the players don't lose, that they take their eyes off of the prize in the long run. So, um, you know, what would it take for campus athletic workers to unionize? Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is that I hope that they realize that there is power in numbers and that there are more players that are not going to be able to capitalize on NIL uh, in quite the way that the stars are. Um, and man, that's a really good question. I mean, realizing the power in numbers, constant communication, and I think maybe education on the education before you get into college. I think it's by the time you're in college, it's almost sort of too late because you're in the system. You've got to listen to your position coach. You're, you're trying to worry about, you know, your playing opportunities and staying eligible and doing all the things that your coaches want you to do. But if people were sort of in, uh, not indoctrinated, but if they were familiarized with unionization at an earlier age, like starting in high school when they become recruited athletes, that might help a little bit. Like, I think I, I really I really do think that like if they get there and they say, hey, look, you can get this little bit of money from your local car dealership or whatever. But do you know that they're potentially this is a six figure job that you're about to go working? And that you don't have any, you don't have any access at that. Like maybe you should think about that and talk about that with your incoming recruiting class and what you guys can do to rectify um, that inequity. So um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, if I was, I'm thinking through this as I talk about it, but I think that by the time you get to college, it's too late. So earlier familiarity with uh, unionization and labor movements probably would be go a long way in helping uh, in the future. I love that, Joel. My dream is you come on your recruiting visit. Gotta have a little bit of time with the union steward. Sorry, mm -hmm. that's just that's just how it goes. You know, this mm -hmm. is a union shop over here. You gotta have some time um, talking, talking collective organization. Um, that would be that would be amazing. And oh. I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, Nathan, we see that's so real because man, when you go on campus visits anyway, I mean, the athletes are kind of giving you the real. I mean, there are you know players that are that just want to show you a good time and take you to the parties and show you to the games, but there are also players that are like, yo, man, that coach sucks. Mm. Or this, this is what, this is what's whack about this college experience. And so there is some of that going on already. You know, there's some of those conversations happening uh, on a person to person level, but I think a more institutionalized, a more organized way of doing it would be go a real long way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm envisioning that like we, we actually we just we've just had a recent interview with uh, Aaron Hatton, who's a sociologist who did a book where she actually compares in the book the the working conditions of college athletes to graduate students, graduate workers mm. at universities. And you know, when I was a graduate student, that's how it was. I was at York University in Toronto, and when we came, like the union, our our graduate student union had time. They had a booth out front. You know, when you were coming and doing your orientation events, like talking to the union was part of the process. And the university didn't like it, but they couldn't right. really keep it out. You know, um, and it has a huge impact. When they when you get people as they come through the door, um, you you use the word indoctrination, but you know it is an ideological struggle. I know you weren't trying to you weren't wetting yourself to that term, but like it's an ideological struggle. It's like the university is trying to um, you know give you their line, and the union has to rebut that in their own way, right? So it's a struggle yeah. that's happening. But the other thing that you made me really want to ask you about, because um, you were talking about how how much easier the communication is across campuses now and it makes perfect sense because of you know texting social media everything else there's a million different ways and it, it, there's no mm -hmm. doubt like we, we you know a podcast like this wouldn't easily be able to exist 20 years ago either um, right 
What was it like for you when you were a player? It just occurred to me, like, was there any of this discourse on the team? You know, not, not in public. I, we know what the public discourse was like in that moment. It was like, you better be grateful that you're a college athlete. There was almost no conversation about um, sort of labor issues in the public, in the media, et cetera. Um, but yeah, were, were you guys talking about any of this stuff behind the scenes then? Not in a real official way, right? Um, we may be, we may talk about, man, that practice was really hard. Um, that coach isn't somebody that you can trust, um, you know, whatever. But it was, it never, we, it was a very surface level conversation of our conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, we were eighteen to nineteen years old. We had never been anywhere, you know. What I mean, I never, I had never lived out of the state, lived outside of my home. Um, I was just trying to get familiar with the new person that I was becoming, right? So it it's a really, it's it's a hard ask to ask 18-year-olds to sort of be uh, totally realized about the, the environment and the conditions with which they're working. So no, we never really had, you know, deep conversations about, oh man, you know, this is an inequitable system. A lot of us would just, and I mean, I you know, I, I go back to the very opener here. A lot of guys, man, were just happy to have stability, man. Yeah. And to, you know, to get they get food every day, have a, a, a safe, stable place to stay, you know, um, I mean, I never I, that's why I always try to remember when I'm having these conversations about college football and, and, and remember how it was 25 years ago when I was a freshman. And yeah, man, a lot of people came from very difficult circumstances. And this was their first opportunity of stability and a, a opportunity to just focus on themselves and school and football and not have to worry about all the other bullshit that comes with it. So um you know it, it, we didn't you know we didn't get past that i mean you know if we even started talking about classes i mean that was a real struggle you know what i mean that was that was, a, that was an yeah. exceptional day an exceptional day about like oh you know majors and you know professional prospects and all that other stuff um we it was really difficult to get past that because yeah we were 18 19 and I'm, I'm including myself in that too I, I had a lot of familiarity with any of this other stuff yeah sorry one of the big like uh things that's kind of layered on top of all of this is that like we tend to think that like youth sports the main lesson is like it's a positive one it's like teaching teamwork and leadership and all these things but but layered on top of all this from a very early stage in elite athletics i think the main lesson being being taught is deference to authority Mm -hmm. So when you have an entire structure built on that, like it's so hard to even imagine someone thinking about any form of resistance, it, re like regardless on all, like when they go to these campus store or when they are part of talking to other players, like that's just not on the, the front burner, if you will. So when, when we're talking about the possibilities of, of any form of resistance, it's like, it's so hard to imagine without sort of completely restructuring our entire youth sport um, field as well. Right. No, you know, and I, I did want to say this because I don't want to, you know, I mean, there's a real conservative culture in college sports, mm -hmm. all sports, but mm -hmm. particularly college sports and particularly football. And if you think about it, I mean, how much college uh, coaches are pushed at the front and like they're sort of the, the icon 
uh, or the avatar for college sports because, you know, they represent the institutions a lot more than the players do because the players are more transient. And if you're a good coach, you know, you you come to symbolize the institution, right? And then that's why there's all this emphasis on hierarchies and leadership. And, they you know, coaches make these leadership councils and, you know, they they pick people that, you know, don't have a problem with the system and they try to get everybody else on board. And that's the same thing that was happening to us. We didn't even think about it like then. But if you're a team captain, you're a team leader, that means something when you're 21 years old and they put you in the, those positions to just sort of, um, uh, I guess, to reinforce uh, the, the the power dynamics at play there. But also, you know, you, you guys asked me about what my experience was 25 years ago. And I should just say, uh, just in all fairness, kids are so much savvier and smarter today. Um, and, and I mean, it, the world is a lot... Um, is a, is a lot closer today than it used to be with it. You know, I didn't even know people on the other side of town when I was growing up in Houston, you know, it was just really difficult. There was no yeah. social media, but now, I mean, they're going to camps, you know, um, they're, they're playing on summer league teams or seven on seven teams. And they're all kind of meeting each other at an earlier point in their careers. And, and we're having, you know, this podcast didn't exist when I was a kid, you know, like there's so many more conversations, so many more people talking about their value. Um, than there were when I was coming out that, you know, we didn't, you know, there was just no way for me to know that, oh man, are you telling me that me three-star recruit has a six-figure value to a college, you know, to a college athletic team? I had no idea. Um, so, you know, th they've got all these advantages today that we did not have. And I think that they're a lot closer um, to having these conversations uh, than we did back then. And I think they're a lot more closer to realizing you know, what all of us want, which is a better, more equitable system. I still think it's a long way away, but I think they're a lot closer today than we were, you know, when I was getting to school in 1996, right? So Yeah, and that that's the most encouraging thing. I've been thinking of this throughout the time you've been talking, like the amount of change we have seen in that 25-year period, that is mm -hmm. inherently encouraging because we went from it being a, a non-conversation, you're telling us, right? I mean, obviously, like, you were, yeah. you were living those conditions. So in that sense, right. it wasn't like it was out of your mind completely, but, like, there wasn't even a language for it, really, or a, a kind of conversation that was happening. And now it is part of part of this more you know general discourse within football and also without in the media and, and beyond. So you know that is that is encouraging for sure. Um, right, right. And the media is yeah. the media isn't good. But it's not like the media is. We, I mean, I know that we all have our critique of the media, right? Like it's yep. not it's not ideal. But it's a oh, lot yeah. better today than it was in 1996. Right. Yeah, and so so yeah, yeah, so yeah. that help that helps a lot too. So that's true. And no, and we're gonna get into that media piece. I, I'm I'm excited to dig into that. But you, you're right. To be if we're gonna be really fair, <laughs> it's it's not the same as it was. And even you know even from our standpoint, and actually you. you but all of us on this on this podcast right now are perfect examples. We are all publishing work in venues that are widely read, right? They're not considered mm -hmm. alternative media. They're actually considered mainstream media. So to be able to mm -hmm. print these stories in mainstream media, it tells you that something has changed for sure. Absolutely. So speaking of those stories, okay, there's one I gotta get into one you did. And this is kind of getting back to the plantation dynamics, especially mm -hmm. in college sport. A brilliant piece which we'll link in the show notes about Liberty University. Okay, and what was happening on campus. This is from um, last year, you wrote the piece. I'm gonna quote at length and then we're gonna get into it. So this is actually, I believe, um, this is from the beginning of the piece. In mid-June, as the pandemic surged across the country, hundreds of students were living on Liberty University's campus. Tavian Tank Land was one of them, taking a summer math class with about 10 other students, half of them his football teammates. One Thursday morning, class was partway through when the instructor told one of Land's teammates that he needed a tutor. 
Sensing some reticence, Land said, the instructor followed up with an attempt at a joke. Don't be scared, he allegedly told the player. Pl excuse me. Don't be scared, he allegedly told the player. I'm not going to pull out my whip and hit you with it. Mm. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I read that yeah. passage, you know, and my jaw dropped because it's, I, I cannot imagine how disturbing it would be to be that young person in that classroom and have someone say those words. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about the dynamics at Liberty? And also maybe speak to whether you view those dynamics, the, the Liberty situation specifically, as unique to that particular uh, institution or maybe sort of exemplary of a broader trend in higher ed. Yeah, man, let me, uh, man, I'm, uh, yeah, man, I felt bad for Tavian uh, Tank Land. But uh, yeah, so the, the top level dynamics of Liberty, it was a mess at the time, right? Um, you know, this is when Jerry Falwell Jr. was still the president, but you know, his leadership of the institution was sort of teetering. Everybody saw... Hmm, this guy's being increasingly bizarre. I wonder what's going on there, you know? And it, it it seemed like where he once had a grip on the culture of the institution that maybe it was loosening a little bit, right? And so that's, you know, that's how this story happens, that people feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more powered to say, this is what we're experiencing. This is what's going on at this university. So um, so I, th I think that we, I can't, I can't, I both can't overstate and understate um, the influence that Jerry Falwell Jr. had on that campus and his bizarre behavior, his deference to, you know, like the most regressive far-right elements of politics. And, you know, he invited on this, you know, to campus, you know, they had these, you know, monthly uh, conversations with, you know, people from politics, celebrity, sports, whatever. And he just had on a bunch of terrible people to come to talk to these students. And it was a big campus deal. So. Um, he created a lot of the, the hostility um, towards, you know, progressive values and people of color and, you know, people of different, you know, sexual orientations and, you know, all that other sort of stuff. Right. So it, it he helped to foster like this really hostile environment. But I mean, there was amongst the players. I mean, you know, they're not all it, it, for Liberty, for Liberty's ambitions. They wanted to be a good football program and they could not like that can't overshadow. Um, you know, Jerry Falwell's politics can't overshadow what they want to do in football if they're going to do that. So when they brought in Hugh Freeze, that you know the disgraced coach from Ole Miss, um, you know they started trying to build up this football program, and so they're bringing in players who you know are a little less familiar with Liberty and its politics, and you know they're just like, oh, this is a a, a really nice you know group of five university with all these great facilities they got all the money in the world they're an ambitious program and they're starting to play this more competitive schedule and so they get there and they realize that you know um whoa once i stop playing football and i have to live my life on campus this place is kind of weird um and so those were sort of the dynamics that were going on but i think when you get to the ground like and i was thinking about this as you mentioned this nathan as you were reading the story back to me um that sort of stuff that 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 Tank Land dealt with, like that's not unfamiliar to athletes that go to um, primarily white institutions. Like I think that that's a story that probably you know if you know guys that played at SEC schools, you know Ole Miss. I think I mean I think of a guy like Justin Fields who went to Ohio State, and one of the stated reasons for leaving the University of Georgia, where he started off his career, was that one of the baseball players. Uh, used a racial slur against him and he didn't feel comfortable there anymore 
So that sort of stuff, like the discomfort that you have and you bring in, you know, primarily black athletes onto these majority white campuses and, you know, people that have not necessarily socialized with each other before and they're from different cultures and you get there and it doesn't probably feel quite as warm and friendly as you would think. And, but I think that that's, a, that's something that's happening at most of the major college campuses of this country that, um, you know, you know, teachers that will insult your intelligence, say things to you that are, that are odd. Um, the same for the coaches, things that they'll say to you, assume about you, or the way that you'll be treated. I remember when Ricky Williams at the University of Texas, he got stopped on campus by the police um, and, and was made to produce his ID. You know what I mean? So, like, I mean, this sort of stuff happens in a lot of places. But li- the, the difference with liberty is that from the top down, like, that's what they wanted. Like, that's the actual atmosphere that they were trying to create, this very hostile atmosphere. Whereas at other campuses, it's just sort of that is the culture of higher education at these major, you know, football playing institutions. Um, and, you know, you, you know, I, but, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, one of the players that uh, transferred his name was Cottrell Clark. Um, he went to Louisville. I bet I would be hard pressed to believe that on a day-to-day basis on campus, that it would be all that different um, from what he experienced at Liberty. Which is really interesting and and kind of one thing that I was thinking of as you're talking, especially in response to the prior question was sort of like, you know, what sorts of, obviously what sorts of leverages of sort of power and control do coaches have over athletes and to what extent do athletes have any sort of room for agency, even though it has, you know, improved since the, since the mid 1990s and 2000s. And I guess I'm, I'm thinking back to the coach uh, recently who said that, you know, like our team is not a democracy or whatever. Mm. And it, and it just is like, if you feel willing to kind of make that argument, like, what are you saying about the kind of sport team and sort of sport culture and sort of way that you are coaching and, and, and enacting sort of policies? And how does that impact the student body? And how does that also clash or sort of jive with the, the culture of your institution? And so I think what you're pointing to really well here is both the specifics to Liberty, but then also how there are similarities to say places like Louisville and other places that maybe we don't always want to look at. Yeah, no, I mean, just think about it. Like, you know, Washington State right now is led by a crazy person, Nick Rolovich, the head football coach, who refuses to, or at least <laughs> uh, up until recently, was refusing to get vaccinated, right? Um, I mean, there's people like that. I mean, it's easy to make fun of him, but there are people like that all over college football. You know what I mean? Like, you just would be surprised, like from the assistant coaches, the head coaches, the people within the athletic department. Um, that those kind of people are all over the place, man. And they're trying to get everybody going in the same direction because as we talked about earlier, like the hierarchy fetish and the leadership fetish within college football and getting everybody on the same page. Cause you believe that the only way the best teams are where everybody believe the same thing and they go in the same direction. Like that's sort of what coaches, that's the environment that coaches are trying to create. Um, so yeah, so let me, that, that, that's not a Liberty thing. That is a, society thing that is a a college football thing but yeah the th- the difference is at liberty like you know they're inviting candace owens on campus and everybody is sort of mandated to show up at these speeches where like that's probably not happening at the university of nebraska uh but but <laughs> but, but 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 still like a lot of the dynamics are the same and you know the players that i talked to at liberty uh even the women's college basketball player um you, you know that i spoke with for that story like she said the sport itself was fine. Like, you know, mm. for what we know, what they experience on a day-to-day basis playing their sport, 
like that part of it is okay. It's probably not that different. But when you step outside of that, um, and the and the, the culture that the people that the institutions are trying to create are just a little bit different. But on a day to day basis, it's probably not all that different. Yeah, that's I, I mean. I'm, I think these are great examples, Johanna, that you brought, you brought up the, the Nick Saban quote about it being uh, not a democracy. And yesterday we had um, Ryan Day, Ohio State's coach, talking about how many bullets he had to fire at players when it came mm. to discipline. Like that's literally the language yeah. he decided to yeah. use. And you just see, right? right? He's, not, he's not trying. Of course, he's not trying to say that he wants to shoot his players. But like the fact that's the language in his mind, right? That he just doesn't, he doesn't even have any self-perspective or reflection on um, the way that he is talking about people who are workers under, mm-hmm. under his authority, right? And it's, it's just, you, all you have to do is listen to these people and they tell you the truth about what's happening in college sport. Man, you know, we don't know. You know, think it's like, I don't know about you all. I mean, I'm, I'm 43, but when I was growing up, and, you know, it wasn't probably until I was in my 20s that I got a little bit more critical of this and after I'd been through it. But you just think coaches are right. You think that there's some sort of, uh, you know, clearinghouse that all the coaches have to go through to make sure that they're qualified to be a leader and that they know everything about football, that they know everything about leadership and how to deal with people and all that sort of stuff. But it's just not true. Like, they're just people. I always say about coaches that they are like overpaid gym coaches. You know, like the same respect that you have for your gym coach is probably the same respect that you should have for a college football coach. But you don't know that until you're in the system and you get familiar with these people and with the things that they'll say to you and how they treat you. You just think, oh, if the coach treats me like this, this must be this must be in my best interest. Like how, how would I know I'm 18 years old? I've never done anything. And I I'm sort of doubting my own self, but I mean, yeah, like a guy like Brian day or Nick Saban, I'm sure that they, you know, they're excellent in some parts, but at the end of the day, they're just people and they're not unassailable. Like their leadership tech, te- you know, techniques, they, they can be questioned, but if you question them, they, you know, people assume that you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. And I think your emphasis on like the fact that coaches want, they, they want a docile team, right? They want mm-hmm. people who are just going to do whatever they say, right? Mm-hmm. They want someone who would take a bullet for the team, quote unquote. I mean, it's very sort of authoritarian and even like race, racially fascist. I, I mean, in the yeah. sense of like, you know, these predominantly white coaches that are reaping, you know, rewards off the labor of all the, you know, black and brown athletes predominantly. And I mean, the fact that connections to capitalism, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's it's these coaches. I mean, the whole like we're not democratic. Like that's not even half of it, as you're pointing out. I think really well here. Yeah. Jo- yeah just no. a, oh, sorry. Jo- I just want to jump in with one statistic here to to bolster what Johanna's saying. When you use a word like it, for some people, they get very sensitive. You say racially fascist. You're like, oh, it's not. There are white. There are white players. There are black coaches. We're talking eighty percent white coaches in the power five and 50 plus percent black players in the power five. Mm -hmm. Those are the numbers that we have to confront, right? And so that's why it's, I think, completely appropriate to use that kind of language. It is a racialized system. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and the word you use, docile, like that's exactly, that is exactly what coaches want. They want players that will not question them, that will not ask a lot of questions. They will just do what the hell they say and get in line. And yeah, it's hard to overlook the racial dynamics of that. I mean, who in the hell is Barry Switzer to tell people how to live their life and like, what's the right, you know, the right thing to do. We don't know, you know, who's, you know, who are these people? Um, You know, Joe Paterno once upon a time, you know, carried him, held himself out as a paragon of morality and leadership. And like, who, we don't know anything about these people. And so like the, the de- they expect all this deference that they don't necessarily earn, but it's just, you know, you don't know that they don't necessarily deserve it until it's too late. Absolutely. And I mean, you obviously, I mean, I think your experience having played football and then transitioning to covering it as a journalist, I think that 
probably brings you some really interesting perspectives. So to what extent do you think your athletic experience have informed or influenced the way you approach college football and other sports as a member of the media? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I mean, I'm definitely a lot more skeptical of like coach talk and the leadership bullshit that goes around the sport and um, romanticizing the dynamics of college football. Like, I mean, you know, of course I love college football. Like I don't, you know, I mean, I, don't, I think that's, I think anybody that knows me understands that, you know, the pageantry of it, Saturdays, the way stadiums look, smell, the fun. I love all that shit. Like, that's great. Um, but um, when I came into it as a journalist, I was like, okay, I know I'll, sometimes that these coaches are full of shit. And I know that the things that they're saying behind closed doors and in locker rooms. And so it made me, I think, a little bit more skeptical than than some people that had not been through that system before. Um, and I think, and I don't, I don't want to say this in a way to hold myself out as like I'm special or anything, but I think that the experience humanized um, the players a lot more to me and the people, you know, you really do meet people from all sorts of parts of the country, um, different, different cultures have had different experiences. And I tried to bring that to my journalism that I'm remembering that, Oh, these guys are kids. So like a lot of, a lot of the coverage that you'll see, about sports, particularly when I was coming up, is about win, loss, right, wrong, uh, correct play on the coverage, fucked up on the coverage. And then I'm thinking of, okay, this is a 19-year-old who blew a big play in front of 80,000 people. What must that feel like? Like, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that as I'm writing about it. Um, you know, or a 20-year-old, you know, he, maybe he had a bad game. Okay, but he's not a professional athlete, you know. Um, there's a human there. So, like, maybe he... I, it, it just made me think about um, the, the the players as people more because I had been one of them myself and that I didn't necessarily need the, the coach filtered or top down um, way of covering sports that is so common to sports coverage even today. Um, you know, I never I never romanticized the coaches that I wrote about uh, covered. Now, some of them I did respect. There were a lot of, you know, you know, great coaches out there and people that I really liked. But. Um, going through the experience myself helped me to dis disabuse the notion that these coaches were, you know, um, people that we necessarily had to respect by virtue of their title. Um, they had to prove it to me. And I think that maybe was a different approach um, that I came with as I entered sports media. Now, in general, um, I'm not sure if you know this, but we talk a lot about sports media and the sports media complex mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. ways in which these major broadcasters like ESPN especially mm -hmm. are really economically invested in the athletic yeah. spectacle that they cover and, and all of the harmful corollaries of that. We we've talked about that. We under we all know that covering the same sport that you need to rely on the violent exploitation of certain people um, that that is inherently a problematic relationship. Now, you've worked for a number of um, or worked at a number of local papers uh, like the Shreveport Times, St. Petersburg Times, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as well as places like ESPN and, and major non-sports outlets like BuzzFeed and now Slate. To what extent have these relative locations informed the freedom that you have had to look critically at the politics of sports, something that in many ways runs counter to the to to the mainstream media did you ever feel 
constrained in that context, particularly relative to your current position, where I assume you have pretty much complete kind of freedom at Slate? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so every place has its challenges, right? The Mm -hmm. one great thing about ESPN is that everybody will at least return your call or email, even if it's just to tell you no. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they at least, they at least know if ESPN, if I if I say that I'm with ESPN, you will at least get a call back. That's not necessarily true when you work at BuzzFeed or Slate, and certainly the Shreveport Times, right? Um, <laughs> but it, so so access is a constraint, but then you also need to think about the quality of access you get. And so when I was at ESPN, I had a lot of a lot of access, but it wasn't necessarily quality access. Like I got. Yeah, 25 minutes with Lincoln Riley in his office, his palatial office. His office was better than most apartments I've lived in, but you know, um, <laughs> right. But, but, but so I get this access, but like, what can I really do with it? And so like, I think in that way, access was sort of overrated. And so that frees you to sort of look at, you know, uh, the players and to try to reach other people in their parts of their lives um, to write about them or, or, or write about parts of the system that you ordinarily wouldn't. Because once you realize, wait a minute, even if I get access, it's going to suck. Um, then you're, then yeah. you've got a lot more freedom to think about the stories that you want to write. Um, and not just, oh, this generic story about this kid overcame this or this week, you know, they're going to get revenge for something that happened last year. You know, Minnesota lost to Iowa. This is the big payback game. You know, once you're sort of freed <laughs> of like that sort of stuff, then you can think a little bit more interesting. Um, a little more critically uh, and think about the sport in a much more interesting way once you realize that the access that you're getting doesn't mean a lot. And I, you know, so I'll even say this about ESPN, which was a lovely play. Like a lot of the people I worked with there, lovely people. Uh, I think they really intend to do really good work. But like one thing you learn really early is that um, relationships must be preserved, you Mm -hmm. know? When you when you're tweeting about something, whether you're writing about something, but like you can't, you don't want to step on this sponsor's toes. I, one time I tweeted about something and I got a phone call about it, and I I can't remember if it was about something about AT and T or something like that. I can't I cannot remember specifically, but they're like, well, you know that AT and T is a big uh, spot, you know, they're they're big advertiser with us, so like don't mm-hmm. tweet at them or don't wow. tweet anything negative about okay. them. And I'm like, man, really, uh, you know, um, and then. I, Another one is I'll just use this example because um, I don't think it speaks that ill of anyone. But you know, they sent me to Washington State several times when I was there, which is just so random because um, I'd never been to Pullman, Washington, and it's just one of the most remote places on earth. But a couple <laughs> times I had to write stories uh, about Mike Leach. You know, the the story about Mike Leach is that he's just lovable. You know, uh, you know, tramp like he's just a you know. Wait, just people think he's lovable. Character. People think he's lovable. That's news, yeah, that's, that's news yeah. to me. <laughs> I mean, but see, that's it's 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 disorienting, right? Because when you're in college football and you're in college sports, like, oh man, that Mike Leach, he's so crazy. You know, he's just so wacky. He's into pirates, and you know, he goes off on these weird tangents, and he's just a real character, right? And so, one of the stories that I had to write, um, that that was assigned, is that he was teaching a class on uh, insurgent the insurgency in the middle east and compared it to air raid football right and so and so like it's you didn't i didn't think about how stupid this was until i was actually sitting in the class and it was actually you know the the brainchild (laughs) of this reactionary stupid right-wing politician in washington state who happened to be mike leach's friend who had spent some time over in the middle east in the military 
And so, like, basically, this guy does his presentation for 30 minutes, and then Mike Leach just comes up there and mumbles and shows some stuff on tape. Like, there was no, like, there was no cohesive lesson plan. Like, it wasn't even, it, it just, like, I would have thought that they would have spent a little bit more time, like, trying to show how this stuff made sense together. But, like, there was no way. Like, they, nobody had put a lot of effort into it. It was stupid. And also was really offensive, um, mm-hmm. the way they were talking about people in the Middle East. And I thought it was, like, racist, you know? And, and so... When I come back and I'm going to write about it, and I'm just like, I look, I got to be honest, like I'm going to be really critical of, um, I'm going to be really critical of this story. Like I don't think it's just the lovable, you know, oh this wacky thing that Mike Leach is doing, right? And so they say, okay, cool, you know, whatever. I write the story, and then when it got published, they had changed all that. They had just made it the lovable wacky story about Mike Leach already. You know, when I when, when by the time it published, I was like, oh man, like that's not that's not what we talked about. And that's not what I think the story is. Like, I don't think this shit is cute. You know what I mean? Like, I think this is stupid. I think Mike Leach is running a game on y'all and y'all are just, you're you're so wedded to the idea that he is a beloved character of college football, that you're not looking critically at him. And so they went ahead and published the story anyway. And that was around the time that I was like, you know what, maybe this just isn't a good fit for me. Like, maybe I'm not, I can't be a part of this system. And like I said, as much as I love ESPN and, some of the people there that I worked with, but like that was I what I can say without trying to speak too ill of the system is that that's that wasn't an uncommon experience in some ways. And I was like, well I don't wanna I don't want my byline on stories like that anymore. You know, I want to do more challenging, um more critical coverage of this uh, of these teams and these people. And if like that's not what they want to do, then you know maybe it's best if I move on. And so that's when the slate opportunity opened up and I was like, well, shoot, you know, a a lot of people probably looked at that and were like, Oh man, why would somebody leave ESPN to go to slate and do podcasts? But um, I think that, you know, I I could do that without sacrificing financially too much. And um, it also like keeping my dignity as a writer and keeping my credibility as a writer. Like that was really important to me. And, you know, although I had a lot of fun at ESPN, like I just, that, that part of it, wasn't quite so cool because I, yeah like, like Nathan like you said I'm like people are like Mike Leach lovable yeah like sensible people people that like looking at this sport like understand that that dude is crazy and like I wouldn't want him in charge of my children but in college football like he's just a lovable you know champ you know what I mean like oh yeah that Mike Leach he's just being wacky again but no he's a crazy person yeah wow that's such an example of political propaganda so so thank you so much for sharing that and you know you've already talked about this a little bit but we'd love to hear a little bit more about sort of how you internally balance to sort of reconcile the tension between being um between critique and enjoyment and for example when talking about the cancellation of march madness um, you talked about it being as quote the insidious, insidious exploitation of the athletes they were by the NCAA and its member conferences and universities. But yet, of course, you know, as someone who loves college sport and still critiques it, sort of how do you make sense of this these tensions? Yeah, man. Well, I just you know, like anything else, like I say, you know, uh, I love my mom, but I have a critique of her. You know what I mean? Like I mean, there's every like with anything. <laughs> That's well said. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, I have a critique of everything that I love. And I also think, you know, having talked about this with people before, that I don't think it does college sports any service for the people that love it to walk away from it and to not think about the people that are left behind. Because like, even if I don't, even if I dislike college sports so much that I walk away from it and don't pay any attention to it, that doesn't mean that the system is done. Like, there's still people there 
that I care about, that other people care about, um, that want to see them treated well and want to be, you know, be a part of the solution. And so mm-hmm. that's why, you know, I, I balance and I'm like, well, it's good for me to be involved and to pay attention to this stuff. And alongside, um, you know, sending shots to the University of Texas for being, you know, overrated bums, uh, you know, I, I, I also, you know, um, can talk about the eyes of Texas and how they've compelled the players that, you know, that we're going to hold out. And, you know, they wanted, they wanted this slate of, you know, things that they asked for last year and how University of Texas has delivered on that. So mm-hmm. I think it's important for us, you know, people like us, right, to be involved in college sports and to pay attention to that sort of stuff. Um, but also acknowledge that, you know, hey, man, a lot of this stuff is fun. Like the parts, there are parts of college sports that are great, like going to a college basketball game or covering the Final Four. Or, you know, I've been to a night game at LSU. That's amazing, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I just think that, like, you know, I think that while I'm also talking about LSU, I can also talk about the ways in which Coach Ogeron um, emboldened and empowered people that were accused of sexual assault or, or protected them and stuff like that. So um, I don't see them as being intention to conflict with each other. I just think that, like, I'm a person who cares about this so much that I can look at it critically uh, alongside my love for the game and say, um, you know, th- while this shit is cool, there's, a, there's also this other shit that is terrible. And, um, you know, I hope that, you know, people will address that and work on that because, you know, it doesn't, it does no good if we all move on to the NFL or, you know, whatever, or, or, which yeah. is, has its own issues, right? Like, I mean, there's not, there's not a sport that doesn't have, you know, some problematic elements to it or has a problematic foundation. And so like, I just, this is just why I choose to sit and spend my time. And I wish there were more of us. Totally. I really appreciate how you frame that. I think, I think it's beautifully put. I'm curious just to probe a little bit more because, you know, there, there's there's similarities and differences between I think sort of how, how we see these sort of things um, when it comes to like basketball for instance I'm I'm exactly the same as you um, mm-hmm. I grew up loving college basketball I still pay attention to college basketball obviously just like you talking about all the problems with college basketball so I, I think that attitude makes perfect sense when it comes to football this is what I'm interested in. I'm not saying this as a, in, in a way that I'm like trying to w- like wag a finger or something you played football mm-hmm. I didn't play football mm-hmm. that's a really different starting point um, it's like a fundamental yeah. profound part of your life and your relationships and everything else and I think that matters um, in terms of our positionality for me at this point the harm that comes with football right like the head trauma specifically mm-hmm. the, the way in which the sport is so fundamentally damaging I, I basically i don't think and I, I i think probably you would agree with me although maybe you don't i'd be interested if you didn't like tackle football can't be separated from the harm right because it just like mm-hmm. you can you can delay when the contact starts and it's better and that matters like I'm not, i don't want to dismiss that but like unless you're playing flag people are going to get really seriously hurt with football um mm-hmm. and because mm-hmm. i don't have the same history with it with you uh that, that you do when i watch football now you know, the truth is I see the harm more than I see the enjoyment I used to get from the sport. I, I grew up watching it and I loved watching it, but now I like, I see the slow-mo shots of the heads coming together. And mm-hmm. the, the truth is that like that pops for me more than like the fun of the game. I'm just, I guess I'm curious how you sit with that aspect of it now as someone who's been there, who like, that's actually a part of your own history, which I can't imagine for all the people who have played football as well. You know, like, I don't know. I just don't know what to do with any of it, but I'm curious where you stand. No, that's really, that's an interesting point. I think that I, you know, I think about this a lot. I mean, even going back to last night, um, you know, my wife didn't grow up 
caring about sports really doesn't care about it now but she'll sit down and watch football with me and so like last night we're watching the nfl preseason game just briefly um between jacksonville and uh whoever the hell they were playing i don't remember like that's how much i was invested in the game right jacksonville versus somebody um oh it was the same and so she's we're watching this one swing pass as running back just gets tackled right and she says wow that looked really violent you know the guy gets tackled i'm like what i was like what what are you talking about he just got he just got tackled. What was the big deal? And she's like, no, that was really violent. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm not qualified to judge how dangerous this looks to other people. You know what I mean? And how dangerous it actually yeah. is. Because I'm just sort of, I'm part of the system, right? Like yeah. I grew up in it. I accept the violence as a part of the game, even knowing that it's ultimately bad. Um, and so I, you know, the, what I would say to you, Nathan, is that like, I, it, it has occurred to me a lot more over the years. Like I cringe a lot more, especially mm-hmm. like, like when I'll watch a game now, there'll be, you know, 10 to 15 points at the game. I'll be like, oh my God, I hope that person gets up or I'll tense up and see, you know, a shot. I'm like, oh my God, I hope his leg didn't get caught up under him or something like that. That's stuff that didn't, that didn't happen to me a decade ago. Uh-huh. And it get and it gets worse and more noticeable every year. So what I would say is that like, I'm, I don't know if I'm catching up to you, um, but it's, it's definitely become much more a part of my viewing experience. And I would say that I probably don't love football as much as I used to, you know, 10, 15, certainly 20 years ago. I could probably do without it, you know, um, at this point in my life. But I just don't um, because, you know, there's cultural and social benefits to it. It's like one of the few things that me and my dad for years could talk about without arguing. Right. Like that was like we he taught me football. He played college football. Um, And like that's something we bond over together talking about that stuff. So I'm connected to it culturally and socially in ways that makes it really difficult to turn away from. But I, you know, as the years go by, I am, I'm also much less invested and I notice the really ugly parts of the game in ways that I didn't before Um, from, you know, and that's all over the place, like from the violence to the, um, you know, the, the, the mismanagement at the top, you know, the leadership, the people that I don't, you know, from Roger Goodell to Nick Saban, to you know local high school football coach who is you know a sort of a little petty tyrant um that sort of stuff becomes a lot much more of the way i think about the game than i used to and so i don't have a problem with that like i i feel like that's a sign of growth and i hope that eventually i get to a point where you are where that i can't overlook it and that maybe someday i turn away from the game and if i have a child you know I tell them, hey, you shouldn't play football because it's really dangerous and I don't agree, you know, with it politically, culturally, socially, whatever else. So, um, you know, I'm getting there, I think, is maybe the the, the, the short of way of saying it, that, you know, I'm there, I, could, I could easily foresee a day 15 years from now where, you know, I, I get to a point, I don't even give a damn. Like, you know, TCU's on, I don't yeah. care. You know, I've, yeah. I've gave up the NFL. Like, I might, yeah. I might watch, you know, the playoffs, but like, I don't even really care about the NFL anymore. And you would have never told me 20 years ago that that would be me. Um, and I just think that some of that is my revulsion with the general culture of the game. Totally. And you know what? It's, I think of it as, it's actually, as you were talking, I was thinking it's a continuum in terms of like the extent to which one gives it course, up. It's yeah. a, it's not an on and off because like for me too, I'm a Canadian kid. I grew up in Toronto. My parents did not go to any American college, let alone play for an American college. But I will tell you on Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon in the fall, 
Mm-hmm. Something makes me want to be watching Michigan and Notre Dame on television. Like I grew, yeah, up, I grew right. up as a Michigan fan, and like not just not just like yeah. as an aesthetic thing. Like I was a Michigan fan, and like sitting down with my brother and my dad earlier on, and like watching that game. There's like nothing in the world that I want to do more. Part of me, right? Like on some sensory mm-hmm. level, I have that feeling still. So I, I completely yeah. get what you're saying about, it. and you can't like we don't have control over that. Um, but at the same you know what's just as a, this is sort of just my mind's pinging around but the other thing that i think is fascinating the last time i watched a football game i had the sound off and oh. i saw the contact it's unbelievable what a difference the yeah. commentators talking about the sports media complex the way that the mm-hmm. commentary naturalizes the harm by mystery yeah. by guiding your vision away from the harm piece towards the performance piece right but it's an amazing yeah. sleight of hand it works you see one thing when you're told oh. to see it and you shut off that sound and you're seeing something completely different. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't even know if you've, I mean, one thing that is really helpful and useful in kind of getting a sense for the violence of the game is like the stand on the sideline. Mm. Um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to do that, you know, especially when I was at ESPN and like, once you can get over it, just like, wow, this is cool. You know what I mean? Like, wow, this is awesome. And then you get down to like the, just the basics of it. They're like people are actually colliding into each other. And you just, you think to yourself, how can people put their bodies through this? Like, I think about it to myself sometime. I'm like, how did I put my body through that? Like, I, it, it, it's bizarre. Like, I would never do that today. I would never, you know, I, like, it, it's dang, I, like we look at the crate challenge and we're like, that's crazy. Like, you just shouldn't be walking <laughs> yeah. up and down on crouts and falling down. I was like, that's a football play every day. That's that's every football play is a crate challenge. Somebody falling yeah. down, getting hit, and hurting themselves. So, um, yeah, man, I you know it's a continuum. I don't know that I'm going to be here in ten years, but you know, watching the game in quite the same way. But yeah, you're right. It, you, you, it's the pull of it every fall. Like I'm, I'm much more excited about it today than I know that I will be in November. Right. Um, but that's just me sort of working through, you know, the, you know, my cultural attachment to the game or whatever. Right. Yeah, that cultural attachment, it, it, it's it's obviously so real. And, and there, there's something so important um, and sort of, I, I'll use the term visceral about that sort of social connection that, that folks have with with sport. And and to me, like that, you you can't really critique that um, pers- in the same way that you can critique someone who isn't even willing to entertain these ideas like like yeah. there there are different people as nathan put at continuum there are different approaches to this question of like how do we watch this sport that we think is is harmful but also um like how do we change or or can we even do those two things together and what the the thing i always come back to is that when people are willfully and purposefully neglecting to have those conversations to have the conversation about how football might actually be incredibly harmful for some people. Those are the people that like, I, to use the expression, like would wag my finger at and be like, what, what, what are you doing? And one of the the big things that stood out to me from what you were saying is when you talked about like young children. And one of the common things that I've seen is folks use the question of, would you let your young child play this sport? as a way to jump in or out of that critique. It's either mm-hmm. uh, I can I can say, yes, I would do that. I would have my child. And therefore, I'm justified to be a sport, I, a, a fan. Therefore, I am justified to not care at all about people. Mm-hmm. And I think that entire system is mm-hmm. built with, with it. The entire sports media complex is, uh, is trying to 
distract people away from the harm so that they can jump out of that so that they can keep the system afloat by by legitimizing their fandom i do not have a question here no, i just there, have a long Nickel, rant nickelodeon had a children's broadcast of the super bowl yeah. or whatever right yeah <laughs> it's exactly yeah. what you're talking about yeah yeah it's i mean that's the indoctrination piece that we were talking about right like that now that's the word like there's all these things that are sort of compelling you to get involved in the game and no you know Derek, you're right like i mean that that question that we because all of our all of us have it or a lot of us have it right the would i let my kid play college football and if you're for it then you accept football as it is and you have no critique of it and if you don't then like you can have all the critique but it's like no wait like what if i want to have a more complicated discussion than that like i don't know who my kid is going to be i don't know what the conditions of the game are going to be 15 or 18 years from now. And like, maybe my kid, you know, I can't prevent them and maybe there's circumstances in which they'll play. But if I do that, that doesn't mean that I should be able to sacrifice. That doesn't mean I have to sacrifice my critique of the game and think that it's yeah. bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's an opt out, right? It's a, e- it's an easy way out of that conversation um, under that binary. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the one other area, this, this covers that we could, we could be talking to you uh, endlessly because we're having such a good time. But um, the one thing I got to hit on before the end, because you were the one person writing in the popular media who articulated my feelings about Michael Jordan. (laughs) Um, And I think this really gets to the heart of these, all of these issues that we're talking about, right? This, the question of competition itself, fundamentally, right? Um, and I think mm-hmm. that your work, unlike almost everyone who works in the sports media, you persistently highlight the way in which sport legitimizes abusive behaviors as long as they are perceived to contribute to winning. And in that way, you can you've successfully, in my estimation, problematize this ethos at the heart of sport as we know it, which is competition and domination as inherent goods. So like mm-hmm. you've written, for instance, of how college basketball coaches are, quote, often middle-aged millionaire militarist fetishists, which is a lovely <laughs> turn of phrase. Um, and then in my favorite piece last year, you know, we talked to Lou Moore on the show about The Last Dance. And one thing that informed my reading and, and preparation for that interview was the piece that you had written about Michael Jordan with, with respect to The Last Dance, in which you, you said that he's revealed to be an emotionally walled-off, dickish, phenomenal basketball player, a hard-driving asshole to his teammates, menacing them both physically and mentally in your ultimate indictment of Jordan's quote ungracious and often abusive treatment of the other players can you speak a bit about the line for you in terms of what is and is not appropriate in the realm of competition and whether competition is even a good at all and by the way spoiler in brackets uh, (laughs) I love it but I don't really think it is (laughs) well yeah no so that's good like I think I'm a very competitive person. You know, I grew up, you know, playing sports and, you know, I'll chat, you know, it in a second, I'll challenge somebody to a race or, you know, mm-hmm. video game, you know, like that was always sort of my thing, but you know, I never fundamentally believe that you had to be cruel to be great. And so like, that's sort of where my critique of Michael Jordan came from. Well, actually I should just say my critique of Michael Jordan came from a superficial place. Like I'm a Rockets fan. And I didn't want people to diminish the Rockets two championships <laughs> in the 90s, right? Um, but also, like, you saw in Akeem that there was another way to be a leader, that, like, you did not have to treat people poorly, that people yeah. didn't, you know, that you didn't have to punch and bully your teammates into playing great, that, like, you could be supportive. You could be supportive and competitive and great without diminishing, you know, not only your teammates, but your competitors. And, and, and you know where this came from? I think in some ways, 
Um, as a teenager, I read the Jordan rules when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading the book and like how ter- terribly he treated Dennis Hobson and um, Stacey King and Horace Grant. And I just read that book and I was like, how can anybody like this guy? Like he didn't even seem likable to me. I was like, I wouldn't want to play. Like I wouldn't want to play with somebody who was always trying to undermine me and my confidence or trying to assert their authority over me at every turn. And maybe that's sort of naive. I, maybe I'd never played in that sort of high level environment, competitive environment. So maybe I can't relate to it, but, um, I don't think sports has to be that. I think it can be a collaborative, fun experience mm-hmm. and still be competitive. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you can still want to beat people. Beating people is fun in and of itself, but you don't have to diminish people along the way. And I think that that's a part of our sports culture that is um, a problem for me. Like, like it was with Kobe. Like, I was not a Kobe fan because I just thought, like, first of all, I think it's just all a bunch of bullshit. Like, I think it's a lot of facade. You know, in, in, in retrospect, we talk about how, you know, how competitive they are. They do this show of, well, I'm going to shoot at the gym, you know, five hours after. <laughs> I played a bad game tonight, so I'm going to, I get to shoot, I and I alone get to shoot on the court by myself until I get it right. Like, I just think all that stuff is ridiculous. And, you know, all the people that talk about, you know, how hard they work. And I'm like, you didn't invent push-ups, bro. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people working hard. Like, you're just yeah. making a big show of it. So I think that, like, a lot of that stuff is just artifice. And that coaches and other stakeholders in the game, they want you to think that that's the standard that you need to meet because it keeps you, as Johanna said earlier, docile. Um, It keeps you, you know, singularly focused on performance and how well you do. And and when you're in that world, if you're looking at sports in that way, it's sort of the zero-sum game, then, yeah, then then the subjugation of your your competitors and, you know, diminishing the contributions of your teammates is naturally going to become a part of it because – you're like, I've done all this work. I've worked really hard. Why haven't you done this? Why can't you meet my effort? Mm-hmm. Why can't you meet my desire? Um, and I just think a lot of that is bullshit. And I don't think that's fun for a lot of people. Like, I, you know, people talk about Michael Jordan and Kobe is great because they were great. But I don't get the feeling that and, and we know that when they were alive, that not a lot of people enjoyed playing with them or be, enjoyed being around them as people. Um mm-hmm. And I, you know, I look at Michael Jordan's life in some ways, which is going to sound so crazy. He's a billionaire. He's, you know, lived out all his dreams, taking care of his family. But I think of his life as sort of sad. Uh, and it seems sort of lonely to be that invested in competition to the point where you sort of drive everybody out of your life and you winnow it down to this very small window in time to where, you know, my life is judged by whether or not I win and how I won. Um, I think that's sad. I would want it to be more of a collaborative process, like where we all win and we all feel good about the experience. And, you know, people can win or lose, but it doesn't have to be a referendum on like the kind of person you are, the competitor you are. Um, and so, yes, I was always just sort of critical of that, even from a year early age. And that, man, I can't believe you know, just talking this through. I really do think that like reading the Jordan rules was like really um formative for me in that way that I, I identified early on that I didn't like any of that shit. I don't want somebody in my face telling me that I'm messing up. Like I'll take that from the coach. I under, you know, I'll take that from the person that's, you know, charged with my performance, but like, I don't need you to diminish me or talk to me in that sort of way or all that other, you know, I'm, you know, the black Mamba, all that other shit, like just play. Like if you're good, like that will speak for it in and of itself. And there's plenty of great players that play that way. Like that's one of the reasons that I like LeBron. Um, he's not perfect, but I think that he like has modeled a way for people that I think is really cool. You know, that like, Oh, this can be a great team experience. 
um, you know, we all share in the fruits if we win and we go down together. And like that part of it, like, I think it's been really a really useful counter narrative to the Michael Jordan shit. But like, I mean, you all are on Twitter. I mean, there's so many more people appreciate the Michael Jordan Kobe stuff, because I just think that's kind of the way American culture is. You know, there's a one winner, winner takes all and everybody else is a loser. So, yeah, I mean, Joel, how else would we answer the question of who is the greatest of all time? Like, right. <laughs> right. Is it, isn't that like basically what sports media's job is for us to do? Like to, they, to, to tell us who we should um, call the goat. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. That like, you know, it's all about that. And then, and that, you know, the goat conversation is about, you know, what did I do to dominate my particular era? And, and I think that it's just like mostly an argument of style, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that Michael Jordan and Kobe have won it. Like, this is the thing, like statistically, empirically, like Kobe is not, you know, even in the conversation for a top five basketball player, but because of the way the narrative that he sold around himself, which was very cynically to distract from the rape allegations, right? Like that mm -hmm. black mama yeah. shit. Like that's how, like people forget that that all came up you know, after the fact, um, when he realized that he couldn't get people to like him in the same way that he did prior to that. So, um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I think all of that stuff is built to like, you know, you know, everybody is building towards this, this, um, this narrative that you've got to be this one way to win. And it's like, you know, advertisers, leaders, uh, of industry, all this other stuff, capitalists, like they, they really like the way that Michael Jordan does because they feel like, oh, okay, we can teach people that if you win, everybody else loses, but the, and that the only important thing is, is, is winning it. And if you didn't win, uh, it's your fault and you deserve to lose and you don't deserve any other spoils. And like that benefits a lot of people like that, that sort of approach to sports, um, which is why I think that everybody loves, you know, Michael Jordan and Kobe so much because, you know, it, it just reinforces like all the problematic cultural parts of sports that you know we, we talk about and we hate you know um and, and like i think a lot more people are into that than you know have being joyful it is you know, i mean like growing up like people you know thought michael magic johnson wasn't serious because he smiled right. you know what i mean yeah. or yeah, or, yeah. or like or like tracy mcgrady just had like sort of a naturally like sleepy-eyed face sleepy-eyed oh my god sleepy-eyed tracy mcgrady you're so right yes yeah, it was a way to diminish him up to Kobe because Kobe like yeah. scowled, scowled and all this stuff, and he oh he took it so much more seriously than Tracy McGrady. I'm like, I don't think that's true, but like it's just all that you know. People fall into that bullshit. Like there's a lot of money behind it, and I think it's just to keep us you know divided and to make and you distracted, know, I think, right? Distracted yeah. away from the harms, away from the problems yeah. in sport as well. I, I was right, yeah. I was so struck watching The Last Dance, the Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan stuff, because I was thinking mm -hmm. like that made sense. At that time, that was the only narrative about what sport is. But at least now in 2021, there is some conversation about sport as work. And at the end of the day, we're talking about colleagues, right? These are co-workers. They are yeah. co-workers. Right. Why right. do they hate each other with such a passion? Like, don't get me wrong, coworkers dislike each other a lot of the time. <laughs> right. But like, but like, in a weird way, they internalized something that was benefiting the NBA. It was benefiting the kind of political economy of the sports media complex. But it sure as hell, this is exactly what you said. It sure as hell wasn't benefiting them as human beings, right? Like Michael Jordan ends up this seemingly deeply unhappy guy. How does he? I mean, mm -hmm. he ends up being the the crying Jordan meme. Like, how is that the legacy of a person who's supposed to be the most successful person in his field 
you know? Yeah, but like there's a right. way in which we know, we even recognize this man is not actually a person who's sort of gratified, satisfied, and living the life that most of us would really want to live. And it was just so, even today, decades later, these two people hate each other because of a yeah. basketball game. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's so crazy, right? That like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the thing is, is that at the end of the day, nobody cares about happiness um, and like fulfillment and, um, you know, val you know, like a, a collaborative experience, right? It, it's a winners take all society. That's what they've set up. You know, it's just, you know, everybody is rushing to get the, this very small piece of the pie. And I get, I get why that's useful early in a basketball player's career, because you are literally trying to like climb over like all these millions of other people that want to do what you want to do. And it's sort of a defense mechanism. Right. And it keeps you focused on the task at hand and working. Like, I mean, I get why a lot of people need that to get to where they are, but um, I just think that it could be a much help. There could be a much healthier approach to competition. Um, if we would let it, if we, you know, that you could still be great. You could still be devoted to your sport and and be a winner but that like by you winning it doesn't mean that everybody else has to lose but um you know as we've mentioned like that's just it's just there's too many people invested in that piece of it and too many people enjoy it i mean again like i mean what is our, our most recent president donald trump i mean you know he won and everybody else was a loser like that's sort of yeah. like that's the fun his fundamental approach to the world and he treated yeah the world and the country like that, that like he won and the rest of us lost. Um, and I don't know how we can change that culture. Like, I think that like, you know, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, you know, people that work in like little league sports or whatever, but you know, I've, I've had a chance to coach youth sports before. And like, you see that they're like a lot of the coaches starting at a very early age, that that's the kind of, you know, shit they get kids on that. That's the, those are the people that they want. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the that's the sort of approach to the game that they want. They want them docile. They just want them focused on performance and nothing else. And it's just really sad. Um, and that's that's see, you all are hearing the cynic in me come out, like where it sounds yeah. hopeless. Uh, but you know, ho I'm hoping I'm hoping that like someday I can sound a little bit more optimistic about this sort of stuff. But you know, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th those who are th those who are in power also don't want a labor force who all enjoy one another and get along exceptionally well and we're yeah. seeing we're seeing that play out we saw it like in the the strike in wnba and the nba like nba is the the players association has done really well in creating this sort of um collective of a bunch of friend high profile friends who actually should probably dislike one another um, mm -hmm. if you if you were buying into that competition thing, but they get along really well. And the strike was like this haphazard like texting going back and forth with people. We're not gonna play tonight. And that's yeah. how it it steamrolls. So one of the things like we should always be thinking about is like when the sports uh, media industrial complex, when all these people are trying to create these conflicts amongst the workforce, there's a reason. For that mm -hmm. there are people mm -hmm. who benefit and there are other people who do not and i i i i, I the cynic is i think nathan and i are and johanna we're completely cynical about all of these things so the cynic is strong in all of us, yes. yeah yeah well i mean just think i mean just like to kind of you know to, to bring it back to an earlier part of the conversation just think about how much more supportive 
the coaches were the we want to play movement. They're like, hey, mm-hmm. will you guys yeah. hear what the kids <laughs> say? They want to get out there. And meanwhile, like yeah. all the, the previous three to four months, there were players that had gotten together and were like, hey, we want to get paid. Also, we yeah. want like, you know, uh, more attention paid to diversity efforts and like, you know, taking a more critical look at the structural racism or whatever. I mean, they were just like, ah, you know, they totally ignored that, didn't acknowledge it, in fact, tried to suppress those labor and unionization efforts. But when Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence and people like that were like, whoa, we want to play, you know, get us out there. Like, oh, look at those kids, man. They're willing to do anything to get out there. You hear what the kids are saying, right? And so it's just... Yeah, it's just really frustrating, um, you know, who gets who gets aired out and, who, you know, whose platforms get supported, right? But, I mean, it was telling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joel D. Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've kept you for now an hour and a half, which I think um, is more than enough. We're so grateful and appreciative of your time. So thank you so much for coming on the End of Sport. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thanks for, for finally getting me on here. I'm a big fan, so uh, glad I could, we could spend some time together. Yeah.